Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. To the Nazis, she was the White Mouse, a resourceful operative who evaded their clutches after having helped 1,037 people escape Nazi territory along the Pato-Leary line. Britain's special operations executive called her Helene. To them, she was a member of their freelance cell embedded with the French resistance. To Marseille's high society, she was Madame Fioca, an intrepid foreign journalist who arrived from a faraway land, fell in love with one of their most eligible bachelors, and subsequently became one of their own. To the French resistance, she was the tough as nails Madame André, a woman who could kill a man with her bare hands. But to Australia, the land that she fled in her teens, she is remembered as Nancy Wake, war hero. As is often the case with Aussie icons, see Farlap, the Pavlova, the Flat White Coffee, the Lamington, Crowded House, Russell Crowe, Stan Walker and Admiral Markham's flag. Nancy Wake was born in New Zealand. Born in 1912 in Roseneath, Wellington to Ella, a homemaker, and Charles Wake, a journalist, the family moved to North Sydney, Australia when Nancy was two years old. Charles had been offered a much better job across the ditch, so they packed up all of their belongings, rounded up all six of their kids and took off across the way. Biographies paint a picture of the family briefly enjoying a comfortable, middle-class existence there, though Charles and Ella's marriage had grown quite loveless at this stage. One day, Charles just disappeared on them, Far from foul play, he'd abandoned the family and gone back to New Zealand. Before Ella and the kids had come to grips with the estrangement, they found out Charles had sold the new house from under them without warning. And so it was, the Wake family moved to a poorer neighbourhood. From here on, Nancy's childhood was one of financial struggle, filled with dreams of moving to somewhere glamorous and exciting full of regular conflict with her mother. Age 16, Nancy ran away from home to become a nurse. Well, technically, as she was a runaway minor wanted by the police, Shirley Ann Kennedy enrolled in a course in Mudgee, northwest of Sydney. This would be the first of many noms de plume she adopted in her life. A mining town with a poorly staffed hospital and a never-ending supply of miners brought in with broken limbs, burns and nasty cuts. Nancy became an expert at patching up wounded men. Two years later, no longer a miner, she returned to Sydney, dropping the disguise. She found a job with a shipping company for a while. A big break, however, came in 1932. Her auntie Hinamoa, the original black sheep of the family, Hinamoa had run off with a married sea captain, wrote to her to say she often thought about Nancy and wished her every success. She was sending Nancy £200 so she could live the life she wanted. That'd be a sum of around 11000 Australian dollars today. 
Nancy books passage on the RMS Aorangi II, headed for Vancouver, Canada. From Vancouver, Nancy spent three weeks in New York, where she discovered their speakeasies, before moving on to London, England. In London, she enrolled in a journalism school. By day, she learned to be a reporter. By night, she was a regular denizen of the nightclubs. One holiday weekend, she jumped on a plane across the English Channel to Paris. Nancy adored Paris. On graduation, she lied her way into a reporting job for the Hearst Corporation by convincing the interviewer she could read Egyptian. Her mock Arabic writing was just Pittman's shorthand written backwards. As a Hearst Corporation reporter based in Europe, she got to relocate to Paris. Nancy learned the language, fit in well with the locals. And one night in 1937, while on holiday in Marseille, she met and fell in love with Henri Fioca, a wealthy industrialist and eligible bachelor. The couple married in 1939, weeks after the outbreak of the Second World War. And it's here I need to rewind for a second to discuss the future of Madame Fiocca's first visit to Marseille. Any story of Europe in the 1930s is bound to intersect with a particular type of lowlife. Her visit to Marseille on 9th October 1934 would not have been her first experience of fascists in action. She was still in Sydney in 1932 when a fascist on horseback gazumped the socialist premier of New South Wales, Jack Lang. As Lang prepared to cut the ribbon on the newly built Sydney Harbour Bridge, one Francis de Groot beat him to it with his cavalry sabre. What happened in Marseille, however, was far more ominous. On October 9th, Nancy Wake was sent to Marseille to cover the arrival of King Alexander I of Yugoslavia. Alexander the Unifier had formerly been the king of just Serbia. He was having one hell of a time unifying his now multi-ethnic empire, particularly from ultranationalist groups who wanted self-determination. The Ustasha, a Croatian fascist organization run in exile from Italy, were by far his greatest threat. Yugoslavia also faced pressure directly from fascist Italy, they claimed ownership of several regions within Slovenia and Croatia. On the political front, federalists wanted to split the empire into smaller constituent parts through legal avenues. A number of landlords were also furious with him, after Alexander dispossessed them of rural land, which he then redistributed to the serfs that were living on the land. The Austrian and Hungarian barons who lost out were a minor threat, but several Muslim landlords, remnants of Ottoman rule, who lived locally, wanted the king gone. To top everything off, his communist neighbours were looking across at him, just waiting for an opportunity to bring Yugoslavia into the fold. In 1929, Alexander temporarily suspended democracy, after fascists attempted a coup. Afterwards, he fired corrupt and fascist civil servants. He arrested the seditionists and troublemakers. The Ustasha responded with a wave of bombings and assassinations. 
Desperate for help and increasingly worried Hitler's ascent in 1933 would lead to a combined Italian, German and Eustachia attempt next time. The king called on France for help and for a military alliance. Alexander arrived on the Dubrovnik on the 9th to a rapturous greeting from the locals. Greeted at the dock by French Foreign Minister Louis Barthaud, the two men climbed into the back seat of a waiting car. They'd barely travelled a hundred yards when an assassin approached the car, shouting, God save the king, and then shooting both men dead. The assassin was, in turn, beaten to death by a furious crowd. The assassin, Vlado Chernozemsky, was an experienced killer who worked for a Macedonian ultranationalist group aligned with the Eustacia. He'd already murdered two politicians before this incident, was by then the guy who trained other assassins. Judging this job too important to leave to an apprentice, he went to Marseille himself to do the deed. Nancy was there to witness the assassination and wrote a report for Hearst Corporation. But as one of the first assassinations caught on film, it's the film footage that people remember today. All the same, it left a lasting impression on her. Mind you, violent fascists doing violent fascist things wasn't something one could ignore in the mid-1930s. Besides France's own homegrown far-right groups, like the Croix de Few, who I mentioned in the Wall Street Putsch, there was a lot going on with the fascists. As a roving reporter based in Europe, Nancy saw or heard much of it. In 1933, she was even sent to Germany to interview Adolf Hitler. In 1935, she travelled to Vienna, Austria, then well in the grip of the fascists. Nancy was appalled to witness roaming gangs of fascists assaulting Jewish citizens in the streets without fear of reprisal. She vowed, should the chance ever present itself, she would help bring Hitler down. Right, back to 1939. It is Christmas 1939 in Marseille, and after only a couple of months of wedded bliss, Henri was called up to serve in the army. Everyone feared the Nazis, having invaded Poland, would be coming after France next. And while France had both the Maginot Line and a well-trained standing army of 800,000 men, the speed with which the Nazis took out Poland was utterly terrifying. Nancy was determined to play a part in the conflict, and had her millionaire beau buy her a truck she could use as an ambulance, should they be invaded. In March 1940, Henri was sent to the Maginot Line on the border with Germany. As the Nazis blitzkrieged through the north of the continent, at first through neutral Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, Italy launched an attack on the south of France. Madame Fiocco was soon in the thick of it, providing medical help to and evacuating the wounded. The Axis powers soon overran the Maginot Line, crushing French defences. On 17th June 1940, Marshal Philippe Pétain, a World War I hero known as the Lion of Verdun, surrendered to the Axis. He soon after took charge as a puppet dictator of a breakaway nation in the south of France, the new capital, the town of Vichy. 
In reaction, a colonel named Charles de Gaulle crossed the English Channel, declared a government in exile who would continue to resist, and started planning that resistance. In October, Patan announced Vichy France had agreed to collaborate with the Axis powers. As local resistance networks formed, Nancy and Henri, now back from the front, joined the resistance. Madame Fioca started off as a courier, shipping radio parts and other equipment to agents in the field. This was dangerous enough, and Vichy France has carried a death sentence of court. Nancy and Henri continued regardless. They would live double lives, well-regarded socialites and pillars of the community on one hand, partisan spies on the other. Though every meeting brought the risk of being uncovered, tortured and executed, they continued to build networks among the disaffected. At night, they listened intently to BBC radio broadcasts from Britain for news on the war. With a second radio blaring in the neighbor's direction, to obscure the noise of the first. As Paris fell, German troops throughout Vichy France became a regular sight, as did captured Allied soldiers. Fort Saint-Jean, an old fortress on Marseille Harbour, became a prison camp for several hundred captured soldiers, sailors and airmen. As the authorities believed the captives couldn't go anywhere, they were allowed to roam freely in the daytime. After a chance meeting in a cafe with a captured officer, Nancy started to courier them goods. A Commander Bush who adopted the codename Javier was their first connection. Javier would later escape the camp and become an important resistance fighter himself. In a matter of a few months, the scope of their mission had increased greatly. The couriers were now part of a network smuggling people out of France into neutral Spain. They were a link in the chain known as the Pato Leary Line, named after a Belgian doctor and agent who took on that nom de guerre. They took in soldiers and occasionally compromised agents, hiding them in rented apartments or in Henri's factory. They acquired documentation for them before taking them to the Pyrenees Mountains. Soon, increasing numbers of French Jews came to them for help as well. Vichy France started sending Jews off to the concentration camps in October 1940. In September 1941, the agents of the Pat O'Leary line were sent into disarray when a rogue operative turned on them. An alleged British officer, allegedly named Paul Cole, stole a large sum of money from the resistance but he'd been given to courier from one cell to another. Cole was confronted, but as the agents argued if they should kill him, he jumped out of a window. Cole, real name Harold Cole, handed himself into the Gestapo, informing on the resistance. Turns out he was actually a British deserter, with a long civilian history of theft and fraud. Cole was in Nancy's house just the once, Nancy having taken a dislike to him and thrown him out. It was possible that one visit wasn't enough for Cole to remember her location. All the same, 50 members of the resistance were captured and executed on his information. On 8th November 1942, 
Britain's General Montgomery led 110,000 troops into Northern Africa in Operation Torch. As the Allies pushed back the infamous Desert Fox, Owen Rommel, taking swathes of land across the Mediterranean from France, the Nazis decided to formally annex Vichy France. With a flood of German soldiers into the region, the work of moving escapees along the Pato-Leary line became all the more dangerous. The Vichy government had never taken to the ports of Marseille en masse, setting fire to a neighbourhood which housed 20,000 people, just to disrupt resistance activity in the area. The Nazis had no problem doing this. This led to a growing number of angry newcomers now looking to join the resistance. Every new recruit brought added muscle, but also the very real possibility of admitting another turncoat or double agent. By 1943, having helped over a thousand people escape, Nancy was finally on the Nazis' radar. Strange men began following her. The phone developed a strange click every time she picked it up. A man was caught going through their letterbox one day by a neighbour. Nancy and Henri discussed the situation. Nancy was to escape down the Pato-Leary line immediately. Henri would get the factory in order to keep running without him, and then follow her. Now Madame Fiocca's escape was fraught with difficulty. The first two attempts were scuttled by terrible weather. While in Toulouse to meet with Pat O'Leary, she was arrested while trying to flee from a train. The police, unaware that she was the famed White Mouse, detained her on suspicion of being a sex worker. Pat O'Leary came to her rescue, explaining to police she wasn't a sex worker, but was in fact his mistress. Multiple times she tried to cross the Pyrenees, only to find the Gestapo had suddenly rumbled one link or another in the O'Leary line. Just prior to her sixth attempt, Nancy joined in on a jailbreak of 10 allied officers. Then, with the officers in tow, she made her escape. This involved all manner of complications, like having to jump from a moving train and dash away from Nazis as they fired a rain of bullets at her. Having legged it, the escapees made their way on foot over the mountains a trip which took several days. Much of the journey was without food and drink, and unsuitable clothing for the freezing nights. One night she had to sleep in a pig pen, where it is thought Nancy contracted scabies. The officers were often a millstone around her neck, complaining and stating they were too tired to go on. Madame Fiocca escaped the clutches of the Gestapo after a long, arduous journey. Soon, she would be in England. By mid-1944, however, she would be back in France, living in a forest, and leading a band of merry men against the Nazis. Okay, I'm going to split the episode in two. I'll have the second half up next week. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. 
all music yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.